0: I'm Enrique Cerna, welcome to this special edition of Conversations. Traffic congestion, it's the bane of every major city. Vancouver, British Columbia is no exception. The 2016 TomTom Traffic Index survey found that Vancouver is the most congested city in Canada, followed by Toronto and Montreal. TomTom estimates Vancouver commuters can spend nearly 30% extra time traveling due to congestion amounting to an average of five full days every year. Why is traffic so bad in the Metro Vancouver area? And what can be done to alleviate the region's transportation woes? With the help of the KCTS-9 Community Advisory Board Canadian members, we took up those questions and much more as we convened a community conversation called our Transportation Challenge, the good, the bad, and the bike lanes. It was held at the Roundhouse Arts and Recreation Center in Vancouver. More than 175 people showed up for a lively discussion with a prominent panel of Canadian public officials involved in addressing the region's transportation issues. I moderated the discussion featuring Mayor Greg Moore of the City of Port Coquitlam, Erin O'Mellon, Executive Director of Hub Cycling, Jeff Cross, Vice President of Planning and Policy for TransLink, the regional transportation network of Metro Vancouver that includes public transit, roads and bridges. And urban planner, Andy Yan, director of the city program at Simon Fraser University. Mr. Mayor, let me start with you first. Uh, And and something I wanna pose to all of you in this. Give me a little headline here of uh, the transportation challenges as you see them in your work and in what you do.
1: Thanks and, and thanks for putting this on. This is a, a wonderful opportunity to have this discussion uh, that's so important to all of us in our daily lives. It doesn't matter if you're a commuter or a student or a senior, this, uh, you have to get around this region whether it's by walking, biking, transit, driving. Um, so you know we always start with the, the what's the biggest challenge, and let me start with the other side of that. You know I, I we I think we need to pat ourselves on the back every once in a while and talk about the good things that we've done. So we have a regional growth strategy. We've actually had regional growth strategies in this region for decades now. Uh, to talk about how we're because you know we're 22 local governments about how we're working together on land use planning. But then we uh, then we take on top of that we put the tra- or we integrate into that the transportation planning and uh, three years. Ago, I guess now that we came out with a 10-year mayor's uh, transportation vision and plan, uh, that was integrating the regional planning, the local planning, and figuring out what we needed to do to get people around this region. So I think, you know, I, actually I know when we were lobbying the federal government to put money into the transit plan, and when the the new government uh, was formed, and they were out talking about their phase one funding. They held our 10-year plan and our regional growth strategy as a model to the rest of the cities across Canada and said, this is what we're looking for. We're not looking for a plan that has one transit line. We're looking for an integrated plan that affects the region and how that works, whether it's a region of Toronto or Calgary or wherever it is. The challenge, I think, one of the biggest challenges that we have is just around funding. We all lived the nightmare of a referendum up here, and I know you... In uh, in the states, do that more often. But that was the first time I think in Canadian history that we had to do a referendum uh, to get funding for a fundamental part of growing a region of transportation. And you know, um, we don't have to live that nightmare again. But it wasn't successful. Uh, and so that funding mechanism. Uh, and as the mayors, I'll say, we really don't have an issue putting our hand up to fund the projects. We just don't have any tools in our toolbox to be able to do that with the exception of one. And so we really need to work on that partnership with the provincial and federal level and I think we're now turning that corner that that partnership is is starting to come together. So I think that's our challenge but I think there's great opportunities for as we go forward here. Aaron. Yeah.
2: So I'm going to talk a lot about bicycling tonight but I want to start out by saying obviously not every trip is a bike trip and so we want there to be options and we do have some amazing options already here in Metro Vancouver and as the population grows and expands into the out. Lying areas. It's really important that we keep up with that. So I'm really looking forward to Translink and the Mayor's Council and what they're working on right now, hopefully going through to be able to fund public transportation properly, cycling and walking properly, and of course, motor vehicles still need to get around. So those options of car sharing are included in that. We're seeing bike sharing come in now. I think having more options allows us to use them for the appropriate type of trip and then freeze out up road space and other types of space, like congested transit space, for the appropriate types of trips so we can all move around easier as there are more and more of us. But back to cycling, I think that's a huge part of the solution Over two-thirds of the trips in Metro Vancouver are under eight kilometers, which is a very bikeable distance. And sometimes the barriers are a disconnected network, where our campaign like Ungap the Map talks about connecting that so that the huge potential, the 25% of people that are already biking would bike more, and the 40% of people that are interested in biking would start to do so. So there's lots of potential there. Uh, we need to make sure that there's a safe and direct way for people to actually get from one part of the region to the other. So creating that base is something that needs to happen now and then we'll start seeing the benefits of that. And then of course there's all of the affordability components that come along with that. Space efficiency, moving more people, less space, less money to build it and maintain it. Uh, people are healthier. So there's lots of benefits and I know you guys are very aware of. Of that and it's just how do we move people past either real barriers or perceived barriers to be able to get there. I'm really happy to see things evolving, like public bike share. And a lot of even the other modes, like car sharing, now have bike racks on them. So you're going to bike part of the trip. Then you're going to put it on the car. Or It gets super rainy in the middle of the day. You don't have to bike all the way home. You've got options. Um, And then other exciting things, like being able to move around the whole region, even longer distances. And cycling highways are something exciting that happening in a lot of places in the world. And we would love to see that here. If you've ever been to Victoria and ridden the Galloping Goose, it's a good local example. And that's very possible here. So I hope to work together with the provincial government in particular, because they're responsible for a lot of our highways, on moving that forward so that we're not just making small change, but really capturing that whole potential. All right.
3: Jeff. Uh, thanks, to Enrique, for having uh, me. For one thing, uh, one of the challenges we used to have is that I don't think anybody in the lower mainland thought that TransLink actually had a planning division. Uh, so <laughs> after the referendum and the... You're here what, to Mayor, prove that we we'll do exist, right? I know I think people are now aware we have it, uh, for better or worse, in some people's opinions. But um, building on Mayor Moore's points, sh- certainly funding has been a, a key issue for us. Uh, I had closer to hair like Aaron than Mayor Moore when I started the funding (laughs) discussion eight years ago, so uh, working on sustainable funding. Um, But Mayor Moore is correct in that we have a really great land use plan and the region is growing really quickly and it's creating a much more urban region. Uh, The challenge for us is to play catch up. It's been uh, since 2009 since we rolled out any major investments. Evergreen's about to come out, but in that time Uh, The region's added 250,000 people, uh, the size of Burnaby, and we have not expanded transit options. We have not necessarily kept pace with the cycling options and integrating all of our transportation planning. Uh, And during that period, in the last couple of years, uh, car prices have gone down, fuel has stabilized, so driving is more attractive to people. So finding really good options that are attractive and not punitive is is the challenge for us, I think.
4: well, thank you, Enrique. I, I guess I want to thank you, KCTS, to uh, have this event. Uh, I, as a child of KCTS, have grown from Sesame Street and reading Rainbow to Red Dwarf. So <laughs> really, I think part of this is kind of what would the headline be into the future. I think it's it's really around, I was trying to think, of maybe do a haiku. And I think the haiku is going something about affordability, mobility, and region. That very much it's a discussion about affordability and knowing that there are significant significant uh, very real affordability issues in dealing with housing for uh, for a- for any local worker in the re- in, in, in in metropolitan Vancouver but then connected to that is actually how important mobility is towards that issue of affordability and I think it's mobility not only in the sense of physical mobility but it's also to understand the nuances and the importance of transit to various groups and populations I think whether you're a young worker or a newcomer to Canada that it, there are actually very significant and important elements Elements in the role of public transportation, in particular, um, and 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 overall. Um um, a sustainable means of transportation overall to uh, to m- mobility in the term of a social and economic sense. And I think the third is really important. is really a discussion in its regional basis. And actually, I think it's also talking about, in a regional basis, towards the successes that we actually have had as a region. Uh, on, as I was talking about in, um, the t- to the group here earlier, was that really when we think about metropolitan Vancouver, and all the cities on the west coast of Canada, the United Canada and the United States, we actually have the highest proportion of workers. Twenty percent of all workers in metropolitan Vancouver actually take transit to work. And as a relative example, uh, in Seattle, it's eight percent. So you, you actually, I think, have this opportunity to kind of create and actually have a culture of mass transit, of public transportation, of tra- sustainable transportation that I think we can really be proud of. But yet, I think within that pride, I think it's also the understanding that, um, of change and the opportunity, I think, in the face of economic change, but also in the face of climate change, that that's really why we need to think about how we, need to, we move around in this region.
0: Give me an idea uh, of what do you think is, I guess, the, what, a, what an ideal infrastructure or a good-looking infrastructure would look like to try to make things work together and mesh together, particularly from your
1: standpoint. I think the, the bottom line with, with most things, and I think transit or transportation movement is the same, is it has to be convenient. Right? If you're out in the burbs and your bus comes every half hour and once an hour in the evenings, that's not convenient. And you're not gonna... Like, I have to take the bus home tonight, gotta go to an event after this, I'm gonna get on the SkyTrain, I'm gonna get to Braid Station, and I sure hope I hit one of the two buses that gets me home, because they're an hour if I miss it, right? That's just... People aren't gonna do that. So the convenience of taking a transit system, or the safety and convenience of cycling, or walking uh, has to be paramount in transforming how people will use the system. You can look at whether it's a SkyTrain or West Coast Express. West Coast Express is probably a great idea, an example. Really convenient to take it uh, and it's packed, right? It's For all of you folks that are in Vancouver, uh, it's standing room only after it leaves Port Coquitlam. So when you get on in Coquitlam and in Port Moody, you're standing for the ride. And so that just is an example of a good, convenient, quality system and it's being used by sort of your untraditional transit users
0: and from that standpoint then how do you make service be on time to make sure this guy gets where he needs to go or anybody else here
3: (laughs) yeah Um, (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> <laughs> I hear this from Mayor Moore at every meeting. Uh, no, one of the things obviously is, is matching supply to demand, but there's insatiable demand in this region. It's a good problem to have. Uh, but even under the most productive corridors, be it the 99 B Line or 97 B Line, buses do not recover you know, the majority of their costs. Uh, the B Line is about the closest, so every time we add service, it requires more funding. But you know, I think that the mayors have identified a really good plan to be able to improve that frequency to better match where the demand is going, and, and Coquitlam and Port Coquitlam are great examples that they're densifying around the corridors where we can then justify putting in more service, and it's this positive feedback loop. And so, as I said, it's been a while since we've been able to catch up uh, to be able to I'm sorry, match that demand, but I think we're in a better place to do it. I'd say the other piece um, to your original question, what can we do, what would it look like to be better, is sort of integrated information and payment so, so that when, when Mayor Moore starts his trip, he knows exactly what his options are going to be and that he has resilient options. So when he gets there at Braid, uh, maybe he has a bike share if he missed that, that uh, last bus by 15 minutes or something like that. My commute here from, the work, uh, from work, I'm out in New Westminster. Uh, to get here tonight, I, I took the sky train to Main Street, and then I looked, I missed the shuttle, so I jumped on the public bike share and biked over here. So having that information, I'd looked at, looked at the travel planner and I knew my transit options, but I didn't yet know all, the, all those other options. That would be a huge improvement and we need to focus more energy there. Andy, you want to weigh in?
4: I think one of the interesting paradigm shifts, I think, as we move forward is actually, I think the fundamental shift of transportation as a service as opposed to stuff. That for a long time we always attributed transportation as stuff, as a car, and I think fundamentally as we change, we we we. And I think what was exciting actually was hearing from the CEO of TransLink talking about how it's a it's an overall kind of collection of services of that that are focused on transportation of how you get from A to B, which could be um, any number of means of getting there, as opposed to owning a car. And I think that that's really one of the exciting kind of dis- disruptions that have occurred in in the face of technology, in the face of just, I think, changing ideas of how do I get to where I need to go that I think we, we can really take advantage of at this moment.
0: Aaron, For you, where does the bike fit in?
2: Uh, well, integration, I mean, I think Jeff started to talk about what i would add to is um, having your compass card and then uh, maybe you don't live in an area that has great transit uh, but you want to get to a sky train station you can bike there it might be your fastest mode and then if you can take that compass card swipe into the secure bike park aid, and then hop on board that's great and then using that same card for bike share on the other end um, so having that integration making sure it's convenient making sure it's obvious i think a lot of people just do what they habitually do, and they're not aware of all of the options. So some kind of awareness campaigns also fit in. It's not just about physical infrastructure and systems, it's about educating and and raising awareness.
0: I I want to uh, note that uh, I was looking at some studies and and reports and studies about congestion and how it's bad for our health, uh, everybody's health, because it uh, raises your blood pressure. Uh, does that for a lot of people uh, it's just bad period for the, the stress that it puts on everybody uh, but one of the things that was suggested I, be, I believe by a national commission was some type of congestion pricing, what do you think
1: of that? So we've talked about it here in the region, whether we call it mobility pricing or road tolling or congestion pricing, um, we think, and I say when I say we, the Mayor's Council, uh, we actually put it in our 10-year vision as the second phase of funding for the plan was to introduce mobility pricing uh, so that you pay for the road system just like you pay for a transit system uh, when you get onto it. It's not a freeway, like it's free. Um, And so, but you can use that not only as a revenue tool, but you can also use it as a policy tool. Uh, If you want to try to, I always use this as a a simple example, if you want to encourage the trucking industry to use the roads when nobody else is on them, let them use the roads free from midnight to 5 a.m. And then when we're trying to get everybody to work, you know, from 5.30 to 9.30, they're gonna pay three or four times the amount. Um, just simple things like that will start to use a financial lever to deal with congestion, to deal with air quality and other things. And I think there's some, uh, there's some good evidence in Portland and other places in the world where they're starting to do that, whether it's a toll-based system every time you go over a bridge, or it's a GPS in your car, or whatever it is, um, and and we're gonna start to have, in this region, some very serious conversations about what that looks like, uh, because if you're gonna bring on, if we're gonna replace the, um, Patello and the provincial government um, apparently is gonna do whatever it takes to replace the George Massey Tunnel, uh, and they're all gonna come on around 2021, 2022, it makes sense then to revamp the whole system if you're gonna bring two new tolls in. So I think that's kind of the time frame that we're working on as well.
3: I think, go ahead. One thing I wanted to add, so when the mayors put together the vision and we were supporting them in that, we said the investments are necessary, but they don't really change the dial without getting the pricing right. And Mayor Moore pointed out that we do that on transit and I think we can do a better job. That's a discussion we're having right now in coming up with a new fare policy and taking advantage of our new smart card system to be able to work on the same sort of time of day in incentives for people to be able to do that. So when we looked at it, we said basically one third of the uh, improvements that we could get to mode share and reducing driving would come from the actual investments and two thirds would be from getting the pricing right. And that's not necessarily pricing more, but it's pricing more at the times of the days when it's expensive for that marginal trip. Andy, you want to weigh in on this at all?
4: Well, I think one of the most important elements, I think, that is a challenge, I think, for our mobility pricing is to make sure that there is a certain um, social equity, that there is an element that is progressive in terms of h- how do you deal with the issue of affordability and how do you deal with, um, I think, groups through which are seeing their geographies transform in, as, as we speak at this very moment, that you see greater amounts of low-income households as well as immigrants, new immigrants in Canada, as well as refugees ending in further and further places away from not only the downtowns and central cities of Vancouver, but then the, the employment centers. And I think that that's really where a considered approach to think about transportation and its means of getting people to work, I think, that needs to come into play. And I think that's a big challenge.
1: But as we know with that, and I don't disagree with you what you were saying, um, when you put together your transportation cost and your housing costs when you go live outside of the urban area, you're paying more for those things than if you just bit the bullet and got rid of your car and paid more for your condo next to the SkyTrain station. But I think cities have a role to play in ensuring that those 40 and 50 year old wood frame three story, very low um, barrier entry rentals that are now getting uh, transformed into shiny high rises, that there isn't a net loss of that rental stock, affordable rental stock within that transit hub because that's where we can really start to uh, address this affordability issue.
4: And a really important plug for some of the work that Metro Vancouver is doing. If there is a report you ought to read this year, it's the H plus T report that the, as Metro Vancouver had published and actually are updating that really talks about the discussion of when you connect transportation and housing together. That very much there is actually, I think, a facade, a illusion that really, really cheap housing is really that cheap, especially once you, uh, once you start adding in in transportation costs. And I think that that's a really important element that I think that um, certainly a com- part of the conversation metropolitan Vancouver is bringing in, talking about location efficiency, talking about the real cost of these types of transportation costs, and really, I think, uh, incentivizing um, the right solutions. Erin, you want to weigh in?
2: Yeah, I think it's really important to start externalizing the costs, making them very explicit, because we're making decisions sometimes based on part of the story. So a lot of people are looking at the house price and they're saying well I'm gonna move way out here because I can afford it and they're not factoring in the full transportation costs as well as their time costs and what impact that has on their quality of life. So I think once you introduce mobility pricing People see, oh, I do have to pay for this. And right now, it's all hidden in taxes that are kind of smushed together. And we get it a lot on the biking side because people say, well, you bikers, you don't pay for any of your infrastructure. That is not true. We pay for it through property and other types of taxes. And our infrastructure as a cyclist costs far less than it does for all of the big motor vehicle stuff. I think you can go like millions of trips on a bike um, compared to one trip with a big uh, truck in terms of the wear and tear on the roads, but people don't understand where the revenue is coming from and where it's going to and how expensive it really is to move around in private vehicles. So the more we can get that out there, and I think the more equitably we can do that around the region, because if you don't have to cross a bridge, you are still using <laughs> the transportation infrastructure, um, the better people will make decisions. So I think affordability needs to be viewed in that bigger picture and we need to be taken Taking into account transportation which can be up to a third of people's income being spent on it
0: Uh, want to work in the audience here if you have questions comments raise your hand this fellow caught my attention so
5: here we go you have a comment yeah I just wanted to put some facts together to some of the comments that we're making here tonight for example um, I live within a block of Broadway where we have the 99 B line which is an example of a transportation system which has the most deplorable urban design I've ever seen. You know, it turns Broadway into what I euphemistically call an open traffic sewer. Um, On regional growth strategies, I think that if we look at the cut change in the cost of housing that Andy's talking about, uh, from personal experiences, from 2005 to 2016, 500% increase. If we go back to uh, Expo 86, where the towers and Skytrains all got started, increase in the price of housing, 2,244%. Um, towers and Skytrain urbanism, or as urbanism, is creating neighborhoods with no social functioning. Uh, anonymity comes with moving into a tower. And the alternative, which is a neighborhood where you have neighbors on all four sides, is something that we're stopping to consider just about throughout the Lower Mainland, uh, regional growth strategies or not. So any other question? You got a question? So how do we frame a question from all that? Um, I think the challenge for transportation, you know, I got here in an electric vehicle that was charged for free. When that's available to everybody, the roads are going to get flooded with cars. The challenge for transportation, you guys can answer me this, how do you take a car trip and turn it into a transit trip? Which comes down
0: to how do you make your commute better, I suppose, too. Go ahead.
4: Land use, land use, land use that fundamentally I think it brings in towards a challenge to not only think about transportation by itself, but really how it's connected to land use and the decisions of the kind of complete communities that we need to develop moving moving forward. And I think that that's really one of the major avenues to really connect on. And I think to really tie in towards this question of land use, and I think this is actually um, a, a pretty interesting statistic, is that um, something that we're that going into thinking about those who take transit, 58% of those are renters, and very much much to this discussion about land use around transit stations may also need to entertain the ideas that you need to engage issues of, 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 of land tenure, of, of housing tenure, I should say. That um, very much the idea of the fact that you should have a certain percentage of rental stock devoted around a, house, around a transit station, I think reflects the kind of realities of those who do take transit.
3: I I would add that um, obviously we need to do the partnering and the land use so the way we think about it um, from the guidance from our board and the Mayor's Council is kind of three pillars to uh, partner Uh, manage and invest, and really to do it in that order, so that you make sure that you've got the land use right, that you've got the pricing right, that you've got the right amount of parking, that you're providing uh, information, all those kinds of things, and that you put the investment in there to catch the demand where it's going to be attractive and convenient. And to, I think, the question, to the gentleman who posed the question, I don't think there's one solution that fits for this region. I think there's still going to be a lot of driving uh in this region you know when we look at the 10-year plan at the end of this right now we have uh, roughly 27 or 28 percent of trips are made by cycling walking or transit we think that might rise to 35 or 36 percent that means 64 percent of the trips are still being made by vehicle and in a lot of places that makes the most sense You know, and I think it's just trying to find a way to efficiently support those neighborhoods and respond to uh, lowering uh, vehicle costs, as you said, with the fleet electrifying and maybe automating connected vehicles. How do we make sure we do so in a livable uh, approach? Well, and I think you also, you know,
1: you talked about the regional growth strategy and regional planning and transit planning. Um, You know, we're not in charge of immigration policy, for example. So we have 38,000 people moving to Metro Vancouver every year. And we need to do our best to try to figure out how to accommodate and maintain our livable region. And so I think we're in this, this evolution right now, or this, this, this transition from, you know, when I grew up, my parents had a single family house with a green piece of grass out front and in the back, and that's what they wanted for me. And now that my daughter's 17, uh, turning 18, I, I, I don't think she wants that. I, I'm not sure if. I want that for her, like my parents wanted it for me and my parents. So I think we're in this time of change that, you know, if you grow up in New York or San Francisco or Shanghai or Paris, you, you don't have this illusion that you're going to have a, a single family dwelling. And so I think we're in that transition. I think my daughter in that generation would rather forego, to your point, four, pe- four neighbors and live in a condo that's next to a transit line, that's next to great entertainment, and that's where they're gonna go out and entertain and that sort of thing. They're not gonna do it in the family room or the TV room. I think that's changing. And I think it's hard for us, uh, in my generation and older, that that's why we were brought up as the way to grow up. And I think our kids are now in that transition. I and, al- and
0: along with that is the struggle to just to be able to buy a home, even if yeah. that were the
1: case. And I think it's harder for us okay. to accept than it is our children. All right. Question
5: here. A question to to mayor in order to our bike rep. <clears throat> before I came to Vancouver 54 years ago, I practically grew up on a bicycle in my home city, Copenhagen, Denmark, which by the way has become the number one bike capital in the world. But you were talking about half an hour service, one hour service in the outer district. So if you live out in in Delta or Grove, way out there, and we have a lot of distance suburbia here, if we're going to have a bus every 15 minutes, I'm all for it, but it will cost a fortune. And what about bike lanes out in those areas? Unless we have bike lanes on on the major highways, uh, not the freeway, but the major highways, people are not going to dare. So what's the solution in those areas? Thank you.
3: Can they coexist? Yeah, thank you. I, I completely agree with you.
1: I think, we're, I think we're at this point, and Aaron talks about it a lot, and you'll probably wanna answer this as well. Uh, I think that's a huge, huge uh, piece to how we go forward. You know, I try to live my life that way. I have this little rule of thumb, if it's, if it's a 10-minute, if I can walk there in 10 minutes, I'll walk there. If it takes more than 10 minutes, I'll ride my bike. And if I have to leave the Tri-Cities, because I'm from Poco, I take transit. Right, so that's kind of how I think about it. Now, our cycling infrastructure. Isn't the best. It, it, we need to do massive improvements to our cycling, as well as our walking infrastructure. In the mayor's 10-year plan, we ensured that we had uh, large sums of money in each of those, walking and cycling, so that we could partner with the provincial government and local government, so we all brought in our share of funding that to transform that. Like in Poco, the Evergreen Line is about to open up. Uh, I think that's going to be transformational for our cycling community, because if they can ride their bike, to your point, from their home, it's going to be, sorry Jeff, it's going to be. faster than transit, it's going to be faster than a car uh, to an Evergreen Line station and then lock it up nice and secure and jump on the Evergreen Line. Uh, I think that is absolutely transformational for our Tri-City region.
2: Thank you for bringing up the suburban cycling issue, and as I mentioned, cycling highways are a really great idea, we're seeing them happen in a lot of other places, they haven't quite caught on in Metro Vancouver yet, although the Central Valley Greenway is a little bit of a preview, and it's very highly used, it goes all the way from New Westminster into Vancouver. So I think we can definitely do this. It's much cheaper and more efficient than providing transit to those low-density areas that you're talking about, that it just doesn't make financial sense to provide that there, and it's very fast. There's no waiting involved at the bus stop. You get straight from door to door. And I think particularly with the uh, growth in electric bikes, electric assist bicycles, they're going to be able to cover longer distances in a shorter amount of time. They're getting more affordable all the time, so I think you'll start to see that really ramp up, and so these types of cycling highways would be very beneficial.
6: Mayor Moore, I think, I think you answered your question initially as to, you know, when you, as in terms of where you were coming from as far as the, the, the terrible defeat of the trans, transportation initiative. I think, in fact, that was the voice of the people saying, at least the majority saying, you know, we don't like the idea that we're growing like we are, and we don't like the alternatives that have been proposed. Now, Andy, you mentioned land use planning. I served for eight years on the Whatcom County Planning Commission. I'm a dual citizen. I lived in Vancouver most of that time, but I have lived in Whatcom County. We have dealt with the same things on a smaller scale in Bellingham and in Whatcom County. But the principle that we tried to work around in terms of transportation planning and population planning, infrastructure planning, was a term Concurrency. You're familiar with that, I'm sure. Concurrency is if you're going to build a high-rise building in a shopping center and you're serviced by a certain number of roads now in a much lower density area, you have to have those services coming online at the same time that things are built. And in Vancouver, that's the problem. You've overbuilt Vancouver and you do not have the infrastructure to service it, and now it's a big problem. To get to the north shore, you have to cross one of two bridges, neither of which have added one lane since 1958. You've got a much, much larger population competing for the same roads, and the fact that Vancouver has the worst traffic in Canada, and the fact that Seattle's probably not too far behind either, well, right you know, right is, is certainly, you know, it's certainly nothing to be proud of. You have to plan, and if that means down zoning, if it means honoring the agricultural land reserve. If it means, you know, looking at all of these methods to slow growth, because we everybody in the world would like to live in Vancouver, but unfortunately we can't accommodate all of them. But if that's what politicians have to do, they have to come out and get behind that and influence people like you who have to make the decisions. Mr. Mayor, how do you respond to that?
1: Um, I'm not sure where to start. I think there's some, some good points in there, but, um, uh, you know, I just sort of... Uh, I think through the, you know, like I said earlier, there's an immigration policy that's a federal policy. We we don't make those decisions. And so, you know, at local the local level, we're doing our best to try to accommodate the growth and doing it in the most livable way. We have urban containment boundaries to ensure that we're not eroding into our farmland and, you know, doing sprawl out into the valley, uh, those sort of things. Um, I, I think the, the challenge that we have, though, the biggest challenge that we have is around funding the system. As Jeff pointed out, we haven't had new operating hours into the transit system since 2009, that's ridiculous. That's absolutely ridiculous that we haven't had new funding into the system. How can we expect to take on immigration growth? How can we take, you know, my daughter's going to move out in the next number of years, and so there's two households where it used to be one, so it's not just immigration. Um, but how can we expect to grow and grow the economy? Grow, you know, we got the biggest port by tonnage in North America here, which is important to the economy of Canada. How can we do that and not have federal and provincial investments into the, I'll just say, the overall transportation system? Except for uh, the Portman Bridge and the Highway 1, which one would argue that maybe it needed to be done for sure, but that was the tipping point to the North Shore. The North Shore did a study um, that the increase, it was about four or five percent increase in traffic when, as soon as the Portman Highway 1 project opened up, and that took those bridges over the breaking point, and now you have a parking lot on the North Shore. So it's that integrated approach to these things, we can't just be building a bridge, a rail line, a this, a that, we gotta think of it as a systems approach.
2: And I I wanna point out, you're talking about population growth and we just can't sustain this, but a success story here in Vancouver is the population has been growing and they've been able to maintain the number of motor vehicle trips coming into the city center and then increase walking, cycling, and transit. It's a huge success story and I think that other places can take note, but you have to provide the other options. So there is room there for us as our population grows to Make sure we have those other options
7: question here hi, um, just they hear about a lot of extravagant plans to build million dollar bridges and you know all sorts of different networks for everything, but I'd just like to challenge you guys to also think about some of the little things like there's things we can do that may be small that might help with some alleviation to congestion, and you know obviously we 'll talk about my route home because uh, that 's what i 'd like you to fix first um, <laughs> but you know, you look at Kingsway, I mean, from 3 to 6, you know, you can't park. But it takes everybody till 6.30 to get home half the time. Like, what if we just opened up another hour and kept that third lane available? Or, you know, and like I said, I'm not an expert, I know you guys are, but, um, you know, if there's something like the Stanley Park Causeway as an idea that would work on something like Kingsway, or go to some of those congested spots and take a look at what's actually going on. I mean, sometimes it's right-hand filters and left-hand filters that can make a big difference. And if you look just up the street here, I mean, I work at uh, uh, up on Davie here, and, you know, Davie and and Berard, uh, especially in the summer when it's really busy, you get cars that are backed up, and then you get pedestrians that are crossing almost the full light, and then somebody wants to go left. So, really, two cars don't even move until the light goes yellow. But five have joined the line, and maybe a little filter to go right and alleviate that pressure first, and but give the pedestrians a little bit more time to cross after. You know, sometimes there's little things that can make a big difference, and I challenge you guys to think about that instead of spending billions. He sounds like a planner. He could be a planner. <laughs> yeah, that's what he yeah are, are so you I, looking yeah. for a job? There you uh, go.
3: <laughs> over here. No, those are spectacular ideas, actually. The mayor's really pushed us when we developed this plan to think about what are the, the cost effective things that we can do. Um, <laughs> Ironically, there's a fund in there to do it, but it's relatively small to do the kinds of things you're talking about, whether it be signal priority for buses, uh, targeted interventions for left-hand turn lanes, things like that. You're absolutely right. It's the low-hanging fruit. And actually, as we think about congestion pricing or mobility pricing and, and what places like London or Stockholm have experienced, they say the pricing is great, but making sure you're doing so at the same time that you do all the signals. Uh, They actually get the same kind of benefit from that effort. So, you know, TransLink was set up with the idea that we also have the major road network that we co-manage with uh, the municipalities to try and get better integration on that. And I think we can do a lot more work in that regard that costs a lot less. Question here.
4: Well, I think what the, um, what the speaker just really touched upon is really, I think, the, the approach that it's both a hardware problem, but also a software issue, that very much the kind of human social engineering aspects of some of our transportation solutions ought to be explored. And, and I think that those often tend to be, um, well, I'm relatively more Cheaper than establishing a transportation network, but then at the same time, one has to realize there's a point where you, where you need to make that investment.
3: Yeah, and they're not sexy though. Like no, opening exactly. a new station or a new line is yeah. really important, but making sure we're doing all those uh, really cost-effective measures concurrently. To right. use the phrase another questioner right. uh, brought up.
4: Well, my personal thing is signage, like the kind of efficiencies you can make after several hundreds of millions of dollars of investment that how about some good signs? Like, how about just telling me where to go? And, and, and I mean, whether, whether you're We'll blocking, tell you where to go. <laughs> <laughs> Many people have told me where to go. But, but very much as a, as a, as a okay, uh, weekend cycler, um, part of, I think, my challenge in kind of understanding the network is the legibility of the, of the cycle network. And that, you know, one can, I think some of it can be solved through signage, but then some of it is actually a commitment towards a legible network that you can understand that comes with a certain uh, totally.
1: Well, we don't have very good signage in Port Coquitlam uh, to on cycling, and, and it's one of our priorities to get it fixed. But So we, we come off this uh, off a bridge, it's downhill, and at the end of it, it's got a bike lane, and at the end of it says, bike lane ends here, right? <laughs> Seriously. But it doesn't actually, it goes through. I don't know why they put up the sign. So I said to, our because I ride my bike, and I said, well, why do we have that sign? Because it actually goes through. Well, you know, if you're gonna turn right, then it ends, but if you go straight, I'm like, this doesn't make any sense. And I, so I said, what do you want me to do? Yeah. So you put up the sign that says bike lane ends here. What do you actually want me to do as a cyclist? Remember, I'm going downhill, so I've got some good momentum. And he goes, well, you should stop and check for cars and then proceed with caution. I'm like, okay, really? I said, what we need to do is give you a bike and let's go for a bike ride. Right. And <laughs> let's ride our community together. All right. well, what, what,
3: what, Question here. Okay,
1: I, oh, what, 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 one thing, Greg, I, I think you've really hit upon,
4: I think, a very important aspect of transportation, it's the user experience. Mm -hmm. And that if you have a negative user experience, you're just not going to use it. And I think when you have a very positive user experience, you can kind of nudge people in having good, trans- having better transportation choices and better transportation behaviors because they have a positive experience. And I think that that's really, again, one of the kind of challenges in any majorly complex massive system is actually just remembering that you have to have, provide that basic positive tra- uh, user experience.
3: Sorry, I'm just going to jump in on that. Uh- actually that's something that our new CEO has really been pushing us on and I think because uh, over the last decade we just couldn't even keep up with demand maybe we lost a little bit of focus on that we're coming from Seattle or a U.S. experience where you're really trying to also attract people that uh, that's a new focus I would say or an increased focus for us all right
0: question
4: uh, my-
2: I'll just add something very quick, and it's related to user experience and signage, which is super important, especially when you're on a bike, because you don't want to go the wrong way and then have to go back up some big hill or get stuck in a spot that feels unsafe. And the other part is working with other agencies and imagining if I'm going somewhere riding for the very first time and I don't know where to go, where am I going to look? Google Maps, probably. That's where everybody goes, and there's not really another good service. Google Maps has not been updated by a lot of our municipal governments and a lot of our TransLink and provincial governments, so it's not actually telling you a good route to go. I've been sent through Poco and Meadows and Maple Ridge on crazy roads, and I'm like, this should not be the recommended <laughs> route. And if that was my first experience on a bike, I would not get back on my bicycle. So In be- POCO,
1: we've actually manipulated the system, so everybody <laughs> has to go through POCO.
8: It's part of our economic <laughs> development engine.
2: Ulterior <laughs> motives. Question here.
8: Hi, I'm Brad Ross from New, New Westminster. And my question is uh, directed specifically to uh, Mayor Moore. Uh, since you're on the board of Metro as well. And and I sort of wish there was a representative from BC Transportation here as well. But this goes, just to segue back a little towards the previous gentleman talking about existing infrastructure. I would like to know how much research and energy, if any, is being focused on improving existing roadways. Uh, For example, synchronizing lights in the city of Vancouver, electronic sensors for light changes, again in the city of Vancouver, Uh, left turn lanes, which are grossly absent in the city of Vancouver. In the little city of New Westminster where I live, we have left turn lanes everywhere, almost everywhere, Uh, roadway sensors that determine when the traffic flows, so if, if there's no traffic in the opposite direction, the light stays green. You're not sitting like you are in Vancouver at a red light at 3 in the morning with no traffic coming. So uh, what I find, and I've lived here for 31 years, I find any bit of efficiency we do have in the burbs comes to a grinding halt at the first traffic light in Vancouver. And we all know Vancouver has this uh, agenda to reduce car traffic. What, the car traffic isn't going to go away. How about making it more efficient on the existing roadways that we already have? Sounds I like another that's planner a, we
1: got here. All right. That's a, that's that's a
8: great question. Uh, and I
1: love the question because I'm Greg, not Gregor. And <laughs> <laughs> I'm the chair of the regional district that doesn't look after any road in the region. And so I can't answer any of your questions. In Port Quillum, I'm the mayor of there. We've got left turn lanes, all that synchronizing and all that green wave stuff and, and all that sort of stuff. And, and we see it all over the place. So, question. Can't help you, sorry. But I, I appreciate your frustration because I've been there too. It feels your pain.
6: Okay, a little bit of a change. My name is Peter Holt. Are we getting value for money is my question of what we're doing. We can't go back. We have to take what we've got now. But how do we get value for money for the future, for the transit we're going to get?
2: I'll start on the cycling front, because there's such a high return on investment when you put money into cycling. And I do feel like it has been neglected in the region by all levels of government. Um, And I understand that the people aren't there using it yet, but the reason why they're not using it yet is because the network doesn't exist. And so I definitely empathize with what you're saying, you know, where is the return on investment? That being said, I do think that the transit system is important and we should be maximizing it with land use and making sure the density is there as much as possible.
1: So, in the in the 10-year plan, uh, Jeff, you can correct, cause I think I can get the numbers slightly wrong. But, um, so, we have the, the Arbutus uh, corridor, not the Arbutus, but the Broadway line that's going to go in. You know, that's 250,000 people a day are going to use that line. Uh, right now, on that B line, 4% of the people that use that line are from Port Coquitlam. So, even though it's geographically in Vancouver, that's a regional asset. Uh, and hopefully, in, a, in whatever the next plan takes us all the way out to UBC and the... 60,000 people that go there uh, every day uh, but and then we've got the Surrey and so that's more about servicing an, an existing need but we know that Surrey and Langley is such a growing area and if we can put in the the lines there we can shape how that community grows and do it right in the beginning instead of trying to figure it out afterwards which is really expensive so uh, we're gonna shape a community by installing those lines but I think one of the the biggest Um, In my opinion, it wasn't talked about a lot, but one of the things that's going to, I think, transform this region the most, there was 11 new B-Line or Better bus lines in this plan. So B-Line or Better, like your 99 B-Line, your 97 B-Line, so they're a bus that uh, is usually articulated because it's higher volume, it goes usually every five minutes and the 99 B-Line goes even faster or even more frequent, but usually every five minutes during peak and maybe every seven minutes or so uh, off-peak. Now there's 11 new lines like that that is going to make it convenient for people around this region to take the bus uh, around the region. I think, the, uh, I think it's 75% of the people will be within a 10-minute walk of a frequent transit network. Is that right? Something like that? Close. Close. Okay. It's been a couple of years. So, but so what that means is is 75% of our population will be able to walk 10 or 15 minutes to a bus that's going to come at a maximum every 15 minutes during the service period. Right? So, my commute home tonight, that bus would come in 15 minutes if I just missed it, it's not a big deal. And the bus that I need to connect with if I missed it, not a big deal because it's going to come. That piece there is transformational to how we can use a transit system.
0: Well, I'm I'm sorry that I didn't get to everybody's question here tonight, but I do appreciate everybody that participated. I really appreciate the fact that you came here this evening. Uh, This is tremendous that I think that you have so much concern about what's happening, uh, about transportation and congestion and kind of the future of of your region. Uh, We feel the pain down below in the the lower 48, so we know what that's like. Uh, But I also wanna say uh, thank you to the KCTS-9 Uh, Community Advisory Board, our folks from Vancouver, B.C., that put together this uh, program. Thank you to the people here at Roundhouse for this uh, great location, and thank you for taking the time to show, Uh, and please give a round of applause to our panel. Thank you. And on behalf of KCTS-9, well, continue watching us, please, and support us. Thank you for joining us tonight. We appreciate it. To hear more podcasts from
6: KCTS 9 Digital Studios, visit kcts9.org slash podcasts.